How are we doing out there? Is it, is it, how's the temperature? Is it all right? Sometimes I see people shivering. I'm telling people up, up here every week, no matter what you ask me, I am always hot. So um, I'm not a good person to ask for that. If I asked you, if I asked you about the nature of the McDonald's Restaurant Corporation, what could you tell me? Mm. Amen. I talked about Starbucks a few weeks ago. We show some love to another staple of the American diet. Now you could tell me about the nature of the McDonald's Restaurant Company as reflected by its individual stores that you've been to, that you know. You could tell me the nature of the company by looking at the company as a whole, you know, what the company stands for, what it's marked by. If, a curious thing to do is if, if you open up your Maps app on your phone or you look at a physical map, I think they still make those, um, by my count, there are roughly 20 McDonald's on the, just the west side of Cleveland. And that, that may even be lowering the expectation. Just think about that, 20, just on the west side. And around here, you may know what McDonald's is the fancy McDonald's. You may know what McDonald's is the dirty McDonald's. You may know what McDonald's has the playground. You may know what McDonald's has the nice bathrooms. And you probably know what the typical drive-thru is like at, the, at a McDonald's. You know what it looks like inside. And let's not forget, you probably know what kind of food they serve at McDonald's. Right, you got your burgers, you got your Big Mac, your Quarter Pounder, your dollar menu, Chicken McNuggets. My personal favorite, breakfast. Breakfast at McDonald's. If I asked you about McDonald's and about its nature, you may be able to tell me about its history, some of its values, uh, its success around the world. The McDonald's brothers tapped into the power of making food fast. They perfected that system. And it wasn't until a milkshake machine salesman happened along their store and he bought in and he franchised the store, Ray Kroc, so that the Golden Arches would not just spread across America, but would spread so far across the world that the Golden Arches are probably one of the well-known logos across the entire earth. McDonald's. And I hate to admit it that when I was in Israel a couple years ago, you would expect that you're just engulfed in the culture and you want to immerse yourself in any way that you can. But one day we went to McDonald's. <laughs> and it looks like a pretty standard McDonald's on the outside. You know, it's like typical American McDonald's. But when the food, though, was a little bit different. Uh, it's just... Not all McDonald's around the world serve the exact stuff they serve here. So I don't remember them having burgers. They definitely didn't have cheeseburgers. Uh, and I, their chicken sandwiches were different. They were, the, the patties were bigger and the breading on them was different as well. But you know what? One thing that was exactly the same? The fries. Oh, <laughs> praise God for that. If you think about it, McDonald's is a, is a kind of kingdom. It's a kingdom that had humble beginnings. 
and it turned, it ballooned into something massive. And maybe McDonald's glory days are behind it. But if I asked you about the nature of God's kingdom, what could you tell me? Perhaps you could tell me something about the nature of the citizens of God's kingdom. You could tell me about the nature of the kingdom as a whole. Maybe you could even tell me the nature of the king himself. Today we continue our journey through the gospel of Mark. And we come to the middle of the fourth chapter where Jesus speaks of the nature of the kingdom of God. Now these verses don't arrive in a vacuum. There's stuff that leads us to this point. So Mark's gospel begins with a pronouncement that Jesus is the son of God who is ushering in, who is bringing God's kingdom. So that means the arrival of Jesus is good news. It's gospel. Because through him, more specifically through his substitutionary death and resurrection, all who have faith in him will be brought into God's kingdom. So Jesus' arrival is good news. And it doesn't take long for people to see that there's something special about Jesus. When he arrives on the scene, Mark shows, he establishes the reality of who Jesus is. He shows Jesus' authority time and time again. He shows that Jesus has the authority on par and equal with the authority that God himself has. We see Jesus calling people not to follow the Torah or the Old Testament. He calls people to follow him. We see Jesus' authority over the highest religious rulers of the day. We see Jesus' authority over even the highest spiritual rulers, how he casts out demons time and time again. And we see Jesus' authority over diseases and maladies, how he can heal. But just as we see who Jesus is, we also see rising opposition. That the one who arrives on the scene, the one who's supposed to bring God's kingdom, the one who is good news, well, not everyone sees him that way. We see this especially from the religious authorities of his day, who at first question who Jesus is. They question the claims that he's making. And then it gets worse. They eventually they plot to kill Jesus. And at one point, we saw a couple weeks ago, they say that Jesus himself is powered by Satan. So these two realities reflect another one of Mark's major themes of how we are brought to this point in the middle of chapter 4. And that's his theme of how to respond properly to Jesus. How to respond properly to Jesus. And we see two different groups emerging. They show up time and again, especially recently. We see those who follow Jesus and those who don't. We see those who do the will of God and those who reject Jesus. Last week, we saw bad soil and we saw good soil. Now, if Jesus is supposed to bring God's kingdom, which keep in mind, the Old Testament says that only God himself could do. If Jesus is supposed to bring God's kingdom, then how do we make sense of the unexpected way in which the kingdom is beginning? Man, this is God's kingdom? All this opposition? This is how it begins? Well, at this part in chapter 4, Jesus answers this objection, this question, 
with three different parables. So then the main point of, of this passage, of these three groups of parables, and the main point of the sermon, you'll find it printed in the bulletin, is that the unimpressive nature of the kingdom that Jesus brings shows that it takes faith to enter. And it also serves to increase God's glory. And so today we're going to notice three different things about the kingdom that Jesus brings. We're looking at Mark chapter 4. And if, you have, if you know the Pew Bible's provided, you'll find that on page 839. Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 21. And just a little bit of housekeeping going in. If we're going to know about the nature of the kingdom of God, I think it might be helpful if we have a basic definition of what the kingdom of God is. Right? So the kingdom of God involves at least three elements. God's people in God's place under God's rule. God's people in God's place under God's rule. And that was set back all the way in the Garden of Eden when God created man and woman. They were God's people in God's place under God's rule. That didn't stay very long. God's kingdom was broken. Man chose himself over God. And so then the story of the whole Bible, the kingdom of God then becomes really essential to it. Because after creation, God sets out a plan to basically not only restore his kingdom so that his people would come back and submit themselves under his rule, but make it better than it ever was. And that plan to restore God's kingdom, that culminates, that climaxes in his son, Jesus Christ. So that when Jesus comes, he could say, the kingdom of God is at hand. That is the nature of God's kingdom. So let's turn then to Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 21. And we'll notice the first thing about the nature of the kingdom is that the kingdom is sometimes hidden. The kingdom is sometimes hidden. Mark 4, 21. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Do these verses intimidate you? When I was in this text over the last few days, I, I had to slow down and really wrestle with these verses because if you just read them quickly, honestly, they're, they're tough to understand. It's tough to see what Jesus is saying here. But that's often what it takes when reading God's word, just practically, to slow down. A lot of times, like any difficult thing, you, you may not get it the first time you, you go for it. So here, if we slow down, we can figure out something about this text even before we read it. It's like what we looked at last week. We can figure out something about this text by reminding ourselves where we are in Mark's gospel. We can look at what's around this text to give us clues about what this means. So remember, these verses are in a section that explains what kind of kingdom Jesus brings 
If it starts off in the way, that's unexpected. If it starts off in the way with many people rejecting Jesus, what kind of kingdom is this then? We slow down a little bit. And we look at this group of verses, verses 21 to 25. We see that verses 21 and 22 are connected by that little word for. And verses 23 to 25 connected. You see another word for in there. So both these sections, 21 to 22, 23 to 25, it's a big truth and it's an application. It's a big truth and an application. So that big truth in that first part, verses 21 to 22, is temporary hiddenness. Temporary hiddenness. Verses 21 to 22, temporary hiddenness. And it picks up on this insider-outsider theme that Jesus has been going with over the last chapter and a half. So you look at verse 21, Jesus is talking about a lamp. And at this point in Jesus' ministry, the lamp being himself and, and subsequently the kingdom that he brings, that lamp is hidden. Some people see him and some people don't. And so we ask, why, why don't people see him? Why aren't people recognizing him? Well, what many had expected from the Messiah, from who Jesus is, from that office that Jesus fulfills, is a warrior king. People in Jesus' day wanted the Messiah to come and break Roman rule. Remember, ancient Israel, first century, they're ruled by the Roman Empire. So they want for the Messiah to basically lead a revolution so that this Roman rule will be broken and they will be free. And it's not just he doesn't do that. He comes from a really unimpressive background. He grew up in the infamous town of Nazareth. He was an uneducated teacher and rabbi. Jesus was raised by a common construction worker. And he doesn't arrive on the scene by rallying troops. He arrives on the scene by teaching and healing. So then we ask, why don't people see him? Why does the lamp seem to be hidden? Well, Jesus isn't meeting their expectations. It gets to the point where other gospel authors tell us that even the guy who was supposed to go before Jesus, the guy who said, here, this is who the Messiah is. He's coming after me, John the Baptist. Even John the Baptist writes to Jesus and says, are you really the Messiah? Or should we expect somebody else? This lamp is hidden. How much more then, if that weren't enough, that the one who's supposed to be the Messiah, this great king, the one who's supposed to break Roman rule, he's crucified on a Roman cross. A crucified Messiah. That's an oxymoron. That's foolishness to Gentiles. It doesn't make any sense. And it's a stumbling block to Jews. Because how could God curse the Messiah in that way? That lamp is hidden. That's what Jesus says in verse 21. The lamp doesn't seem, the light from it doesn't seem to have filled up the entire room. And Jesus asks this logical question in this verse. He said, if you're going to have a, an effective lamp, then you need to put it in a place where its light will shine. You can't put something over it. You can't put it low. You got to put it high up so that people, so that it will illumine the room. But Jesus says, for now, he's hidden. Not everybody can see him. 
And the fact that Jesus knows this, it tells us that he knows that hiding the lamp is actually a part of the plan. Hiding the lamp is actually a part of the plan. That's what we see in verse 22. Remember, we said temporary hiddenness. Right? Himself hiding, the lamp being hidden, will not last forever. So we see the, the religious leaders, they, they reject Jesus, right? And that's inexcusable. But what they actually didn't know was their rejection of Jesus was actually a part of God's plan. It was actually a part of God's plan. So we may be tempted to think that with increasing opposition to Jesus, that Jesus has somehow lost control of his mission. That Jesus is driving and he's somehow fallen asleep at the wheel and is veering off the side of the road. But in fact, Jesus has both hands on the wheel and is wide awake, traveling straight down the will of God the Father. And we see that because Jesus is hidden and people oppose him, it will bring him to die as a ransom for many. That although people oppose him and plan to kill him, even hundreds of years before, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, verse 10, even though people plan to kill him, that verse tells us it was God's plan for the Messiah to go in the place of sinners. That it was God's will, even, to crush him. Think of that. Jesus is hidden. That's temporary. And it's a part of the plan to save us. So, friends, the light had to be hidden. But that light could not be put out. Jesus bursts from the grave as the risen king. And his light is carried forth by his church. And his light will shine brighter and even clearer upon his return. So Jesus is hidden temporarily. But he is not hidden forever. And Jesus' temporary hiddenness serves to heighten the necessity of responding to him in faith. I mean, you really got to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. You really got to believe that Jesus is going to do what he says he's going to do, especially when he seems hidden in this way, especially when he keeps on saying that he must die, that the Messiah must die. You really have to have faith that he is who he says he is. That's what Jesus says in verses 23 to 25. That's that big application, is that we must hear Jesus with faith, even though he may seem to be temporarily hidden. You know the, the Jamaican bobsled team? Uh, they're 88 Olympics, I think, Winter Olympics. Ah, three weeks in a row with Winter Olympics. Uh, they're Jamaica bobsled team. Those things don't go together. That's kind of the premise of the story. Because they have four sprinters who didn't make uh, the Olympic sprinting team for the Summer Olympics. But their dream is to get to the Olympics and they're running out of time. So they develop a plan. There's a bobsledding coach on the island of Jamaica. Uh, and they try to convince him to coach them so that they will be able to enter the Winter Olympics as the first ever Jamaican bobsled team. So Jamaica doesn't exactly have a ton of funding for the Winter Olympics. But nonetheless, they raise the funds and they get to, I think, Calgary, Canada. And they have to qualify. 
But in order to qualify, they have to get a sled. They don't even have that. And they have, I think, five grand to buy a bobsled. And five grand, even at that time, wasn't going to buy you a state-of-the-art bobsled. In fact, it bought them a really junky one. And so there's a moment when their coach reveals the sled that they have, that they're going to take down uh, to qualify. And he says, yeah, it's not much to look at, but this is what it is. And the team is sort of stunned, and they're a little down besides their captain. He tells everyone to be quiet because this sled is beautiful. So it's here. This light is hidden. It's hard to see. So we have to pay attention. We have to believe that this light is who he says he is, that this light is beautiful. And Jesus wants us, wants to encourage those who have heard him with faith. He wants to encourage them by telling them that their faith is well-placed. And like we saw last week, those who have faith in Christ, God will continue to produce fruit in those who repent of their sins and trust in Christ alone for their forgiveness of sins and a right standing before God. Jesus says to the one who has faith, more will be given. Practically, an increased understanding happened for the disciples. You think about it. They couldn't see clearly who Jesus was. But when Jesus rose from the dead, man, boy, did they see clearly. When they were filled with the Holy Spirit, boy, did they see clearly that that light was no longer hidden. When Jesus returns, oh, we will see clearly that that light is not hidden. So for now, we are like that man. When we live every day, we are like that man who comes to Jesus and says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And God is faithful to those who pursue him to increase in their faith. Paul tells us to work out our salvation because it is God who works in us. It's a both and. We pursue God and God blesses and grows us. And if you are eager to grow in your confidence and your love for Christ, if you are eager to do that, friends, then you will be easily edified. That means you will approach every Bible lesson you hear, every time you open the word yourself. You will approach every sermon you listen to with the posture not of trying to uh, criticize it in any way you can, but with the posture of trying to feed on anything you can. Those who hunger to grow, those who hunger to grow in their confidence and faith in Christ will feast on God's word regularly. This is our food. So Jesus, being the light and savior of the world, may not be obvious for everyone, at least for now. But for those who have heard him with faith, he tells us to keep on hearing. He tells us to keep on hearing, to pay attention to what we hear, verse 24. So if we want to be those who grow in our faith by hearing the word, then we should make sure we're good hearers of the word. Charles Spurgeon gave four steps to improve our hearing so that we will grow. He says, one, we need to hear in the first place. That's sort of the floor. We build up from there. We need to hear God's word in the first place. Two, if we're going to hear so we grow in our faith, we're going to hear God's word, we need to hear well. 
When it comes to reading or listening to a sermon, we come with our deepest attention. But that's, that's why we've been taking a moment of silence at the beginning of each service, so that we can focus our hearts completely on hearing the word. And we hear well when we hear the word with the mind of how, seeking how we can apply it to our lives, seeking of how we can obey it, seeking of how we can love God more in light of hearing it. So we're going to hear, we're going to grow in our faith. We need to hear. We need to hear well. And we need to hear often. I don't know how many times you skip a meal. I never skip a meal. <laughs> how many meals have we skipped out here? More than, more than I can count for me. If we are eager to grow, then we will be eager to read the word, to sit under the word at every chance we get. We need to hear. We need to hear well. We need to hear often. And we need to hear better. This reveals our attitude when we come and approach Christ as seen in his word. Guys, this, this is how God gives life. His word. He speaks and he gives life. So Jesus is hidden from now. A couple steps back where we've been. He's hidden for now. And while some have heard him, not everyone has. That light is hidden. And it's like what we said last week. This passage is both an encouragement and it's a warning. Jesus wants to encourage those who have faith in him, but he also warns those who don't. He warns them not to remain there any longer. You know, you may be here this morning and you're here. And you may feel a tug towards Christ and you're sitting in this pew. That's commendable, friend. But if you keep staying in that middle zone where you haven't given your life over to Christ, you're living for yourself, not him. And if you keep staying there, one day God will just give you exactly what you want. And I promise, friends, one day it, it will be proven that you do not want that. So see the light on the stand. See that Jesus has indeed risen from the dead. We don't, we don't think that's a fairy tale here. We actually believe that that happened that the light is shining bright now and will shine even brighter later. So the kingdom is temporarily hidden, but it will not be forever. So we respond with faith. We continue to build up our faith by hearing the word. So Mark turns to recount another one of Jesus' parables that relate to the kingdom. And this particular parable is unique to the gospel of Mark. And the main thing it shows us is that the kingdom is a product of God's work. That's the second point. The, the kingdom grows because of God. The kingdom grows because of God. We pick it back up in verse 26. The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade and the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Before we really dive in, just marvel for one second that out of all the possible images that Jesus could have used to describe the kingdom of God, out of all the possible images he could have used, he talks about a guy planting seeds. 
you think about it, God is, God is infinitely above us. The kingdom is, is glorious beyond anything we've ever seen or imagined. And yet he says it's like a man planting seeds. You know, this, is, this is God's transcendence, that, that we cannot reach up to God. But you know what God does? He reaches down to us. That's shown even here. And you know what it's shown most supremely? It's shown in the incarnation, that God the Son existed in equality with God the Father from eternity past. But he did not uh, consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be taken advantage of. But he humbled himself, and he became human. And he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. So though God, we are infinitely separated from him. We cannot reach up to him. God reaches down to us. That's a reality we see even right here before we even dive in. In these verses, we see our role in the kingdom. And more importantly, we see God's role in the kingdom. You look at verse 26. It's a familiar picture because we saw the same one last week. Jesus begins with a man who sows seed on the ground. First, this refers to Jesus. Jesus comes bringing the kingdom, bringing the gospel. But Jesus will send out his followers to do that same work, to do that work of sowing the seed of the gospel. Friends, we do that because Jesus sends us to do it. We sow the seed of the gospel because it's a privilege to work for our king. We sow the seed of the gospel because the world needs the gospel. We sow the seed of the gospel, as we'll see, because God uses our labors. He raises up that seed. So if you want to fuel yourself to do this work of our role in the kingdom, of sowing the seed of the gospel, if you want some motivation to do that, then consistently renew yourself in the gospel. Preach it to yourself every day. Remind yourself of actually what the gospel is. And remind yourself of the reasons why we go out and uh, spread the seed of the gospel. Now, we saw this application last week. Saw the same one. You know, one of the benefits of, of just preaching through a book is that we can't avoid repetition. If God wants us to see something, we're going to see something multiple weeks in a row. And it tells us it's important for us to see so last week, I emphasized that sowing the seed of the gospel takes sharing the gospel with our words and with our actions, with our love. So we sow the seed indiscriminately, and we love people indiscriminately. But what actual words do we use? How do we actually sow the seed of the gospel? Well, there's no precise formula. I'm sorry if I disappointed you there. But there are essential components. Think of them like blueprints to a house, right? Blueprints to a house, they're not going to tell you what's going to go up on the walls. They're not going to tell you what kind of carpet you're going to put in. They're not going to tell you, I don't know, uh, the color of paint you're going to put on your walls. But the blueprints of the house are going to tell you what's essential for that house to stand. So what is essential in sharing the gospel? Now, four things, four things again. God, man, Christ, response. God, man, Christ, response. God is infinite. He's holy. He's the creator of the universe, including the creator of humankind. 
And if he's the creator of humankind, then he is judge of humankind. Now, what kind of judge is God? God is a perfect judge because there is no sin in God. God cannot dwell with sin. He is holy. And not only cannot God dwell with sin, but because God is perfect, he must punish sin. So this is God. And God created man. Man who's created in the image of God. Man who is created to live for God. But if we look around, if we're honest with ourselves, we have not lived up to what we were created for. So that means we are separated from God because God cannot dwell with sin. And that means, moreover, we are under God's judgment. God, man, that puts us in a predicament, doesn't it? But God sent Christ. God, man, Christ. God the Son, the second person of the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, took on flesh, And he lived the life that we didn't live. He lived sinlessly. And he died the death that we deserved. Taking our sins and bearing the punishment that we earned from God. So God, man, Christ. And you know what proved that he did that? That he did not stay in the grave. That he rose again. So now we see God, man, Christ response. Jesus says that we must repent of our sins, turn from them, and believe in him alone for the forgiveness of our sins. To believe in him, not ourselves for a good standing before God, because we've sinned. We believe in a substitute, in him alone, who has lived perfectly before God. And if we have faith in him, he will credit his righteousness to our account so that we can stand perfectly before God, and we can enter his presence. We can no longer be separated from him. That's the gospel, friends. God, man, Christ responds. That's how we sow the seed of the gospel. But how does a person come to believe? How does God's kingdom grow? This is because it's God's work. You look at verse 27. We see God's role in growing the kingdom. You see what happens after the man scatters the seed? He goes to sleep. And why is he able to do that? It's because he knows that he's not the one who ultimately makes the seed grow. It's like what we read in 1 Corinthians. God gives the increase. So we can reflect a lot about the life of Billy Graham. And... This is a man who preached that same God-man Christ response to millions of people around the world. And maybe God brought some of you here to faith. He grew that seed of the gospel in your heart through the ministry of Billy Graham. But Dr. Graham knew that no matter how much he sowed the seed of the gospel, that it must be God who gives the increase. He said this to his students. I used to think that in evangelism, I had to do it all. But now I approach evangelism with a totally different attitude. I approach it with complete relaxation. First of all, I don't believe that any man can come to Christ unless the Holy Spirit has prepared his heart. Secondly, I don't believe any man could come to Christ unless God drives him. 
My job is to proclaim the message. It is the Holy Spirit's job to do the work, period. God gives the increase. Friends, if everything depended on us, there would be no harvest. If everything depended on us, not only wouldn't we be able to sleep, but friends, we shouldn't sleep if everything depended on us. In verse 28, Jesus goes on to say that the earth produces by itself. By itself, literally, that's autome. It's where we get the word automatic. God will bring people to the harvest. So then, friends, when we faithfully scatter that seed of the gospel, our task then becomes to wait in faith for God, to pray for fruit. Friends, that's why we pray for fruit often here. So if we're here this morning, if you do not believe in Christ, pray that God, the Holy Spirit, would work in you, that he would convince you that you, in fact, are separated from God, that you need a substitute, you need a Savior. And Jesus tells us elsewhere that a time will come when his final harvest is gathered in. Friends, where will you be on that day? For those of us who have believed in Christ, God calls us to sow the seed of the gospel and to trust in him. Because, friends, God uses faithfulness. And that's how we measure success. We pray for fruit, but we measure success by our faithfulness to sow the seed of the gospel, no matter the result, because this is what God has called us to. And God will bring the harvest. God will grow his kingdom. Lastly, and more briefly, the kingdom starts small but ends big. The kingdom starts small but ends big. Verse 30. And he said to them, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. What's the one thing kids hear from adults if they haven't seen them in a long time? You got taller. Have you grown? Now, most kids give like this half-hearted smile. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. But to us, the growth is obvious. But to most kids, they still feel small. With all this talk of God's kingdom, Jesus would have heard, Jesus may have would have known what others were thinking. Others may have thought, Jesus, you keep saying that God's kingdom is at hand. Man, it, it sure doesn't look like it. Maybe we could say that now. We can empathize with that. To this, Jesus responds by likening the kingdom to a mustard seed. Its humble beginnings are like a mustard seed. And just as a side note, if you know your horticulture real well, you read verse 31, Jesus says that the mustard seed is the smallest seed in, in all the world. On, on the surface, that statement is false. Mustard seeds aren't the smallest seeds in the world. 
But like us, those in Jesus' day spoke with hyperbole. They exaggerated. He's talking to them about what they know. It's like if I said the stoplight at the Big Creek Parkway and Smith Road is the longest stoplight in the world. <laughs> it sure feels like it, but I know it's not. It doesn't have the same effect as if I said, you know, the stoplight at Big Creek Parkway and Smith Road is among the top 10% of the longest stoplights in the world. It's the longest in the, wor- it's the, longest in the world. That's just a side note. At, at its beginning, the kingdom is something small and unimpressive. You think about it. Instead of starting the kingdom like a mustard seed, God could have started it something like a cedar tree. A cedar tree was a symbol of strength and majesty in ancient Israel. Instead of coming in the form of a servant, Jesus could have immediately entered as a king. Instead of the church only starting in Acts 1 with 120 followers of Christ, it could have started as a mass movement. So the mustard seed beginning of the kingdom picks up a pattern of the rest of Scripture. And that's that God uses what appears to be small and unimpressive so that no one can deny that it's his power behind it. So that no one can deny that the glory belongs to him. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians that Christ's power is made perfect in weakness. So friends, the world may tell you that you aren't impressive, that you aren't important. But Christ's power is made perfect in weakness. And God is glorified in your salvation. The the angels sing just as loudly for your salvation as anyone else's. I promise you that. Our church, Old Oak Bible Church, may be tempted to think that since we don't have thousands or hundreds among us, that God can't be glorified among us. Friends, that's a lie. And speaking of the church, other places, Matthew 18 in a context where they're deciding what a true believer in the gospel looks like. Jesus says, where two or three of them are gathered to decide that, I am among them. I would say Jesus' presence is a pretty glorious thing. So Jesus says that what may look unimpressive now will not be that way in the future. Mustard seeds grow into these mega plants usually 12 to 15 feet wide. So if you do, I I don't do this kind of thing a lot. Um, You look at the top of your fingertip. You look at the top of your fingertip, just, just that little circle. A mustard seed can fit on the top of your fingertip. And from that, a seed that will grow 12 to 15 feet wide. From that, A seed whose branches, Jesus says, can uphold the birds of the air. Humble beginnings to a great end. You know, Jesus doesn't say what exactly these branches mean. He could just be emphasizing his main point, that the kingdom is going to grow. It's not always going to look like this. It's going to serve to bring God's glory. But other places, the Bible makes it clear that the kingdom's going to grow Its branches will spread throughout the world. That's why we pray for unreached people groups, people who haven't heard the gospel yet. 
Because Jesus has people among those. Friends, you think of the first people who read the Gospel of Mark, the church in Rome. At that time, they were starting to be persecuted for their faith. The Roman government was persecuting Christians in the city of Rome. Would they not have been tempted? Think, man, man this, we're supposed to be waiting for God's kingdom. And we're just this little church off somewhere. And what is the end that we're anticipating? This is it. That though, God, though God's kingdom looks like this now, it will not always look like that. So what gives us hope in a seemingly hopeless world is that Jesus is bringing the kingdom and that he has made a way for us. Yes, even us, though we have sinned against God, he has made a way for us to be a part of it. So we say with Paul in Romans 8 that we do not consider the sufferings of this present time as worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. So if I asked you about the nature of God's kingdom, what could you tell me? Verses 33 to 34, Mark reminds us of Jesus' exhortation to hear what he has to say. And friends, when we hear Jesus with faith, God will continue to grow us because we will be eager to grow We will be eager to be more faithful citizens of the kingdom. We will be eager to spread the seed of the gospel so that more can be brought in. When we hear Jesus with faith, we will sow the seed of the gospel, which God will use to grow his kingdom. When we hear Jesus with faith, we will lay hold of the hope of future glory. That though the kingdom looks unimpressive now, it will not always look that way. That though there is much trouble in the world, we are kingdom bound. Let's pray. To you, O Lord, alone belongs the glory. You have given the increase in our hearts, and you have reached down and sought us out when we did not seek you. Not just that we did not seek you, but that we were against you. Lord, in your grace, in your mercy, you reached down, changed our hearts, paid the penalty for the sins we committed. You have accomplished our salvation. You have accomplished our redemption. God, help us to be faithful. Increase our faith. Lord, we believe, but Lord, so often we do not believe. God, help us to grow. Keep us passionate for the gospel. And keep us seeking your kingdom, believing in you, and laying hope of the glory that is to come. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.